Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you, good to celebrate, good to know that God is still guiding and directing and encouraging us in our journey and helping us to find this relationship with Jesus, right? And so I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, I'm also grateful that I'm just, you know, about a decade younger than the 85-year-old sitting right over here. (laughs) Not you, Bob. Not you, Bob. Yeah. It has been fun to be together on this journey uh, called Restoration throughout the season of Lent. And it's been so fun, in fact, to discover and hear your stories of restoration. Um, Man, I've I've been hearing them from you personally and privately. We've been hearing and reading them on the blogs. If you haven't read the blogs about restoration, I sure want to encourage you to go to the tmumc.org slash blog website. You'll see some great stories there. And then in most of our small groups, whether life groups or Sunday school or Bible studies, man, there's just been some phenomenal stories of restoration throughout this season. And so what an honor it is to hear your stories and to know the ways that God is working in and through your life and how Jesus is helping you restore your soul and restore your connection and restore your relationship. It's why, of course, we want to offer restoration to our friends, our sisters and brothers in Mozambique. You heard the powerful story from Laura this morning, but we set out on this course several months ago to to make sure we could help restore this glorious land in Mozambique and Chikuki and Kambini and and to help establish for the very first time a sanitation program. And we so often take that for granted as, as we become consumers, as they are becoming, there's just more trash. And golly, if we don't have a way to dispose of that, it, it of course has horrible impact on society. And so your generosity can make that possible, uh, as well as create new jobs in these communities. And that's a powerful, powerful gift. And so I just want to say thank you to those of you who've already made donations. And I want to challenge and encourage and invite those of us who've not yet done that, because you can make a powerful difference. We set a goal of $50,000 every year. We supersede our goal, and so I look forward to that possibility, and I invite you to join with Kay and I as we make our gifts uh, to make this possible. So thank you for that opportunity. As we've been going through the season of Lent, we've kind of traversed with Jesus, right? And we've seen the Last Supper. We've seen the betrayal of Peter. We've seen the arrest of Jesus. And today we're at a bit of a hinge point. We're at the trial of Jesus. And the reality is, of course, it's not just a single trial. There are actually a couple of points at which Jesus has these encounters where the law is trying to uh, condemn him and, and cause him to go to be crucified. And it's a fascinating endeavor that sometimes gets overlooked between the betrayal and the arrest that captivates us and the crucifixion that is the result of the trial, we sometimes look right past it. And so today I'm really excited to spend a little time here on the trial because it will help us to better understand what God was thinking and intending in this trial for the restoration of creation. And so I want to call us to John's gospel. Uh, All of the gospels, of course, render this account of the trial, but John's gospel has some unique and, and powerful ways for us to better understand it. And as I mentioned, there's actually more than a single trial, right? There's a trial before the high priest, and the the Jewish leadership does not figure out how they can um, condemn Jesus appropriately given the Roman law, so they hand Jesus over to Pilate. And in John's gospel, when they hand him over to Pilate, uh, Pilate kind of asks the question, well, golly, what what wrong has this man done? I see nothing wrong. And, And their only answer was, we wouldn't bring the guy before you if he hadn't done something wrong. That was the best they could say. And then we find ourselves in chapter 18 of John's gospel, and we begin to see that now Pilate wants to have a private conversation with Jesus because he's not getting anywhere with the public defense. 
So join me in verse 33 of chapter 18 as we begin to discover how restoration takes shape. Pilate went back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own or have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus replied, my kingdom does not originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have to be arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. I was born and came into this world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. To which Pilate responded, what is truth? After Pilate said this, he returned to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no grounds for any charge against him. Well, it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? I mean, he can't get any kind of guidance uh, after the, Jesus has been before Caiaphas, and so now the Jewish leaders want Pilate to take care of this, and Pilate can't really even in a private conversation find anything wrong with what Jesus has done, but the conversation itself is pretty profound, isn't it? Jesus does what He often does when people ask Him a question. He initially responds with a, another question, doesn't He? Who, did, did you figure this out yourself, or did somebody tell you this, right? And, Pilate then expresses himself, well, I'm not Jewish. I don't know how all this stuff works. All I know is they've presented you to me. Why are you here? And then Jesus does something really quite amazing. It's a single answer, but it has a twofold meaning. One is very political, and one is deeply spiritual. John, the gospel writer, is an excellent portrayer of the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and one of the things John always does is help us to better understand the spiritual component of why Jesus has come and what it is Jesus is trying to do. But the first thing I want to address is this political comment that Jesus makes. He identifies not that He is a king, not that He is an emperor, but that He has a kingdom and that His kingdom is not from this place. And instantly, Pilate would have understood this, and anybody else who happened to be in the palace uh, uh, partaking in this conversation would realize that Jesus is making a very political statement, and that political statement is this. Caesar, or Pilate for that matter, would have demanded that other people, people of the community, people of the empire, would refer to Caesar as Lord, as Savior, even as God. And so as Jesus begins to describe His own kingdom, this kingdom that you and I know is the kingdom of God that He has brought into the world, Jesus is instantly saying, Caesar is not God. Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not Savior. He is instantly making a statement of fact that He is Lord of lords and King of kings and above all else. And Pilate would have known that. He would have fully comprehended what that meant. And so that, we just kind of put that right there because it's a very powerful statement on Jesus' behalf to acknowledge His power and His authority. But then there's this other comment, my kingdom is not of this world. It didn't originate here as the CEB refers to it, and it's not from here. And what Jesus is saying is, I, I am an otherworldly king. I come to bring a whole different kind of understanding of kingship. 
And this kingship is, an, is a kingdom that has no end. This kingdom brings peace. This kingdom brings healing. This kingdom brings wholeness. This kingdom brings salvation. And Jesus is making a very clear statement that I want you to know this, Pilate. I want you to understand that um, you are not the, the king here, or in this case, the governor of the region, but rather I bring something that is really quite much more powerful. And what I'm asking of you, and not just you, by the way, but everybody here and anybody who will profess a followership in me, is that I am Lord, and that I am Lord above all other lords, that I am king above all other kings, that I am above and beyond any of the empire that you may claim. This is what God brings. And friends, that's what we claim, isn't it, as followers of Jesus, that He is our Lord? that He is our boss, that He is our master, that we follow His rules, that we are guided by His teachings, and that everyone else's falls somewhere a tier or two down, right? But He is King of kings. It's, in fact, what we um, profess when we get baptized. You know, in the United Methodist Church, we have a few questions that we ask before we baptize folks, and the prominent one is this. Do you profess Jesus Christ as Savior? Put your whole trust in His grace and promise to serve Him as Lord. That's not a light statement to respond to, is it? It's not a light undertaking in terms of a commitment, is it? Savior, trust, Lord. It means that I'm laying my whole life before you, Jesus, and I'm giving my whole self over to you. That's why I get so excited when we do baptisms whether it's a baptism of an infant right here or whether it's an immersion of a youth or a child or, a, or an adult. Some of you may recall that uh, a few years ago as, as COVID took over, we started to do immersion baptisms for a confirmation class, those 12 and 13-year-olds who are committing to faith. And just yesterday, we did some more baptisms, and it was a lot of fun, friends, to watch those young people go under the water and to surrender to Jesus and come back up washed from their sin and to uh, find new life as they come back up out of that water. And they have professed a response to the question, do you confess Jesus as Savior? Do you put your whole trust in His grace? Do you promise to serve Him as Lord? And they have said yes, and they've made this commitment. And it's the commitment that Jesus yearns for us to claim, not just to say, but to claim in our lives, with our actions, with our deeds, that He is above all and beyond all. I love the way the Apostle Paul put it when he wrote to the church at Rome. He, he, he just laid it out, and in Romans chapter 10, he just said, now, look, if you confess Jesus, uh, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and that He has been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a simple procedure, right? And yet it takes a life of commitment and dedication and followership. But that's what we're here to do. And in part, what, Je what Jesus is saying to Pilate in this conversation is this is what I bring. I bring this truth that my kingdom is a kingdom from my Father, that my kingdom is a kingdom that is above any other kingdom, that my kingdom is above anything you might follow in any of your ways here. That is the truth. In fact, Jesus said, those who listen to my voice know the truth. Remember? To which Pilate, who as a good politician had no clue what the truth was, says, what is truth? What is truth? And while 
he had the gall and the nerve to ask that question out loud. I'm pretty convinced we often ask this question of ourselves and of the world. What, what is truth? And Jesus has been very clear in his teachings. John is very good about reporting this. You may recall that Jesus at one point in John chapter 14 literally says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that truth is that He is the Savior of the world, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He brings life when we follow Him. And that life is rich and it's abundant. Earlier in John's Gospel, in the eighth chapter, he would be talking about God's Word, and he said, now if you make your life founded upon this Word, you will know the truth, he says, and the truth will set you free. And it's that freedom that we try to glean in our own lives, right? It's that freedom that we're yearning for and understanding that we can be set free if we'll follow Jesus' kingdom. You see, the trial becomes real important not just for a private conversation between Pilate and Jesus, but for us in the readership to hear the powerful truth that now that Pilate gets it, and I'm convinced he gets it. It doesn't say anywhere in the text that Pilate understands, but I'm convinced he gets it. He understands who Jesus is, and he understands what Jesus is bringing, and he understands that this kingdom that he brings is above all, through all, and in all. And so Pilate says, I find no reason to condemn this man, and he puts it into their hands again, right? And it's fascinating what happens. We didn't read it, and we won't read it, but over the next few verses at the end of chapter 18 and the first couple of verses of chapter 19 of John's gospel, um, uh, Pilate is kind of caught in the middle. He, he wants to appease the Jewish leadership because he knows that they can make trouble for him, but he clearly needs to appease his boss and do the right thing and what the law demands but he's not 100% sure what needs to happen. So he flogs Jesus and he mocks Jesus and he puts a crown of thorns on his head and he puts a, a, a purple robe on him and then he parades him out in front of them and says, here is your king. To which they all respond to his great horror. Crucify him, kill him, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas, you kill him. And Pilate's beside himself. He, he's shocked, in fact. He doesn't understand why they would want to do this and how it is that they could find something wrong with what he does. And notice what takes shape when he is appalled at what they are saying and what they do. We pick back up in chapter 19, verse 8, and it says this, when Pilate heard this, their cries, their desire for crucifixion, he was even more afraid. He went back into the residence and spoke to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and also to crucify you? And Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. That's why the one who handed me over to you has a greater sin. From that moment on, Pilate wanted to release him. However, the Jewish leadership cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he led Jesus out and seated him on the judge's bench at the place called Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was about noon on the preparation day for the Passover, and Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, 
here is your king. And the Jewish leadership cried out, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate responded, what? Do you want me to crucify your king? We have no king but the emperor, the chief priests answered. And then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Wow. Poor Pilate, he's caught in the middle. He's caught between career and Christ. He's caught between what is the right thing to do and what is the judicious thing to do, right? He's, he's caught between how should I do this and how can this possibly be? And he literally, as one of the other gospel writers puts it, wants to wash his hands of, of the whole thing. He's caught in the middle, and yet he wants to do the right thing. And so as he responds to Jesus, he tries to leverage this relationship, and he says, how dare you sort of talk to me that way? Don't you know I could actually release you, or I could crucify you? Don't you know what kind of power and authority I have over you, friend? <laughs> Jesus is so good, isn't he? You, you would have no authority had it not come from above. You would have no power of any kind had it not come from above. Well, you can imagine that's not exactly what Pilate wants to hear, but he hears it, and he responds to it. And Jesus begins to sort of unpack for him, not only is this kingdom which I bring different, not only is this authority that I have different, but I need you to know that any authority you may think that you have, it actually comes from the same source. Jesus would say this in more than one occasion, right, that His power is better, that His authority is better, that His kingdom is better. I reflect back in John's gospel just a few short chapters before where He identifies Himself as the gate and the good shepherd in John chapter 10, and in part He describes that He has the power to lay His life down. In fact, that He, that he would voluntarily give His life. It says in chapter 10, verse 18, I have power to lay it down, meaning my own life. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again, and I have to receive this command from my Father. You see, Jesus really does have more power, more authority, more capacity than Pilate or Caesar or any other emperor, president, prime minister, political leader. Jesus has more. That's a part of what we're claiming here. And because He has more, He can give us more. And a part of what He wants to give and the trial is indicating is if I will commit my whole self, my saviorship, my trust, my lordship to you, Jesus, then I'll find this freedom. I'll find this power that you bring. I'll find this capacity that you can offer to me and to everybody. That's, that's really what Paul was saying when he wrote to the churches in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 5, when he talked about how um, we have this freedom in Christ and He's set us free, free from bondage to slavery, free from bondage to, to the leaders of the day, free from the empire. We're, we're free when we find this relationship with Jesus. It's why in the baptismal questions, there's yet another one. 
Not only do we profess a followership of Savior and Lordship, but we say even before then that I accept the freedom and the power God gives me to resist evil and oppression and uh, sin in any form they may present themselves. He offers us freedom. He offers us power. And He suggests to us, even in this private conversation with Pilate, that this is real for anybody who will claim it. And so, friends, if we say publicly, if we say before others, if we live this um, uh, trust in God's grace that we accept Jesus as Savior and that we serve Him as Lord, we find amazing power. It's why it's so fascinating the words that the Jewish leaders share at the end of this particular story. Pilate's ready to wash his hands of it, right? Pilate's ready to give it away. Pilate's ready to hand Jesus over to them for them to do whatever it is they need to do. And it's in that moment that the Jewish leaders say, you are no friend of Caesar's. There is no king above Caesar. In fact, we have no king but the emperor. And those are fatal words, friends. They are fatal words not just for the Jewish leadership. They are fatal words not just for those who might have been around and sort of cheered that on, but they are fatal words for any of us at any time when we claim as followers of Jesus that there is any leader, whether president or prime minister, whether governor or otherwise, that is above the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this is the sin of Christian nationalism that says somehow that because I'm an American, I'm better than anybody else, that says somehow that because I'm a follower of Jesus in America, that somehow I'm better than anybody else. Do you know that Jesus died for everybody? Do you know that Jesus died for all? Do we know that Jesus is above all leaders, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords? And while I am proud to be an American, and while I love my country, and I would be no elsewhere in my life, my ultimate allegiance, as I believe yours is, is to Jesus and His kingdom and all that He brings. Because you see, when He went on trial this day, it was God who made it possible God who gave him the capacity, and God who rules over all. And Jesus, as that King of kings and Lord of lords, gives us this life and this truth that is beyond any nation, any empire, any leader other than him. Now, do we have governmental authority? Absolutely. But if ever there comes a time when there's something at odds, we always must take the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I am convinced, and I pray you are too, that when we do so, that we, when we have claimed Jesus as Savior and we have claimed Jesus as Lord and we've put our whole trust in His grace, that when we claim Him as King and Lord, we will find this restoration that will change who we are and how we are that will then, because of that, change the world and have God's kingdom become much more of a reality, much more of a possibility. You see, this is the gift that the trial offers us. 
It helps remind not only Pilate and those who gathered, but all of us who read it and understand it, that as our King and as our Lord, we submit to Him, and our lives will be forever changed, and the world will be forever transformed, and the possibilities of God renewing creation become real. You see, this is why Jesus came. He must be betrayed. He must be arrested. He must be tried. He must be crucified. And yes, He must be raised from the dead so that He can overcome any human capacity, so that those of us in all of our humanity can claim His authority in all of our days. What a powerful gift this is. And I'm so grateful that that trial happened and that Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in front of Pilate said, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords, and my kingdom shall never end. Thanks be to God that that is true. Will you pray with me? Holy and amazing God, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus, for the salvation that he offers for the grace and mercy that He demonstrates, and for His Lordship which we submit to. Help us, Lord, for we are challenged every single day in what we see and what we face and what we understand. Help us, Lord, to trust and believe the words we proclaimed at our baptism or were reclaimed on our behalf, that we put our whole trust in You and that we make a promise to serve You as our Lord, as our boss, as our master, as our Savior. And because of that, God, restoration can be true and real, not only for us, but for all of your creation. God, this is our prayer, and we gratefully pray it in the name of Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen. Friends, before we move further in the service, let me just offer you my deep gratitude for your amazing generosity over the years. Uh, your generosity helps make the touring possible for those young people who just sang for you. Uh, your generosity makes it possible for us to make transformation in Mozambique. Your generosity helps transform hearts and lives and those baptisms that we just did yesterday real and fruitful. So thank you for all of your generosity. If you brought a gift this morning, there are some boxes right outside at the white columns. We'd love for you to deposit that there. Or if you'd like to make a gift here or even tomorrow, you can scan the QR code that's on the screen or you can text the letters T-M-U-M-C to the number 45777. Thank you for all that you do.